This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Manner Companion Graded Reader Series, and 12 out of 10 dentists agree someone is using bad math. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Manner Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and once said, Danger, do not touch, must be the scariest thing to read in Braille. In this episode, John and I are going to talk about a linguistic concept that you've probably never heard of, but is pervasive throughout all languages. This will help you understand why for some things there is simply no direct translation, and for others, why there is no good explanation on why something is said a certain way other than, that's just how it is said. Guest interviews with Stephen Loach a particle physicist turned artificial intelligence developer who fell in love with the Chinese language. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the USA. Hey guys, I am John Pasden in Shanghai, China. How's it going? All right, Johnny, before we kick in today, we have a couple of reviews. Okay, Simon says, I'd like to thank you for the Mandarin Companion books and the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. What's not to love? Thanks, guys. You're welcome, Simon. Hey, Simon says. Short and sweet. Okay, we have a Latin American listener. It's from Estefania A. Bedoya Soto. I love the name. She says, Ni hao, John and Jared. I'm a relatively new listener of your podcast. And I first do want to say that I really enjoy your podcast and the conversations you have about the Chinese learning journey. It really helps me to be mentally aware that I'm not the only one struggling and that is normal and okay to struggle. I have been learning Chinese since childhood because it was taught at school. But in my senior year of high school, I was determined to graduate with at least a very good basic conversational Chinese. And since then, I've improved on my own. After listening to your episode on setting goals of learning Chinese, I really relate so much with what you talked about, as I do with all your episodes, especially the using Chinese for learning Chinese. I have been doing that for a few months now, but listening from you guys really gave me joy. I love listening to you. Gives me peace of mind in my learning. Please keep it up. Greetings and good wishes from Latin America. Bye-bye. Estefania. Well, thanks so much. We really appreciate that. All right. So today we're going to talk about a linguistic topic, which is not that scary. I'm going to introduce it linguistically first, and then we're going to get into some ways that this is a super useful concept for eliminating confusion learning Chinese. You know, we all know that happens. So the linguistics term we're going to talk about is pragmatics. And the idea is not what words mean, not the grammar. Like you can understand the words, you can understand the grammar, but someone says something for another purpose, which is not obvious because it's not your culture. It's not your context. And so when you understand what someone says, you understand every word, the grammar is not an issue, but you have no idea why they're saying this. It can be very confusing. And it's something that happens not only in totally foreign languages like Chinese. And maybe, John, I'm not totally clear on this, so maybe you could give me an example about what you mean. I'll think of a classic married couple example. The wife and the husband are sitting on the couch, and the wife starts like rubbing her arms, and she asks her husband, are you cold? Nah, I know what this is like. <laughs> so she's not asking that because she wants to know if he's cold, right? You can just call this a hint. Uh, you can call it whatever you want. They both know what's going on. So she's using the language in a way that is not totally clear based on the words and the grammar. 
And some people might see that and say, are you cold? And she's rubbing her arms. They might say, uh, no, and just carry on, you know, watching TV. But I've been married for 15 years now. If I see that happen, I'll be like, I can get you a blanket or <laughs> maybe we should put on a sweater or maybe they turn up the heat. Right. There's this concept of pragmatic competence. And in normal English, we just call that having a decent EQ or just having a clue about what people want when they're talking to you, right? Yeah. Sometimes not stating exactly what they want, they may be implying things and you have to kind of know the context and understand it. Yeah. So with pragmatics, it's often like related to a culture. Like in this culture, people often say this when they mean this and you just kind of have to know it. You know, John, now that you talk about this, an example comes to my mind. When I was younger, I lived in England for a couple of years and a common greeting in England was uh, just saying, all right, and the time, you know, in my age as well, my common greeting was, what's up? And so it was this always kind of awkward exchange. It was kind of like, uh, all right. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm fine. What's wrong? And like, what's up? What's up with you? And they're like, oh, uh, nothing. I'm nothing's up. I'm okay. Everything's fine. <laughs> you know, so you've all had this awkwardness going on. Yeah, for sure. And so it's a lot worse when you're learning Chinese, I think. So I'll start with the example that I think probably everyone already knows. Every first year Chinese learner learns, which is, Ni chilama, you know, have you eaten? And when people mm -hmm. ask you that, they don't necessarily care if you've eaten. It's just a way of greeting you, you know, just kind of asking how you are. You know, John, I have to say, I didn't really hear that too much in Shanghai, at least in the circles I was in. And it wasn't till I had been in China, I think, for a few years before I really came across people who would say, like, Ni chilama. And yeah, it did. It caught me off guard. And I never went through any courses or anything. So it wasn't one of these common things I learned in a textbook. But it was, I was like, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe three hours ago. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they don't care about those details, right? And this is one thing that I think even when you know, you know, you've studied it, you've heard it before, it's still like, it's hard to get used to. Oh, it is. It is. I was with someone and with a friend, a foreigner, and yeah, some Chinese person said, Ni ma, and I kind of gave that response of like, you know, not recently, but they were like, no, 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 it's like a greeting. It's like, you know, they're saying like, hello to you. I'm like, what, really? And just to be clear, this is different from just like cultural differences, right? Uh, it's different from like using chopsticks instead of a fork or, uh, you know, including your photo on your resume or being super humble and denying every compliment that's thrown at you. Like the point is they're saying one thing, which sounds like it means one thing, but really it means another thing which is just asking how you're doing. Let's give a few other examples of this. One thing I think is related to another super common word, just xiexie. Uh, so you'll notice in China that people think a lot less often than we do in the U.S. And I think you might be tempted to think that Chinese people are kind of rude, but actually in the cultural context, you don't need to say thank you all the time. And they think it's kind of funny or, I don't know, cute that foreigners can't stop saying thank you. Yeah, I sometimes hear this from uh, Chinese. They're like, yeah, foreigners are so polite. You know, they're so nice. It was like, well, we're kind of used to saying thank you, but they're not used to that, right? Yeah, from their perspective, we're saying thank you when you don't really need to say thank you. And from our perspective, it's like any decent person would say thank you in this situation, right? But it's two different cultures. So to give an example of that, like if someone treats you to a meal in China, you're going to remark about how good the food is. That's not very strange, right? But you're probably not going to say thank you at the end of the meal because the way that you say thank you is by eating plenty, enjoying the food, and just like, you know, interacting with the person. 
Then imagine like at the end of the meal, it's a large group. Someone needs to go. They have something that they can't miss. And they say, which means I am leaving first. I remember the first time when I encountered this, it's like, okay, yeah, there's 10 of us here. You're leaving. You're the first one leaving. Why do you want to emphasize that you're the first one leaving and that you're leaving before anyone else when it's so obvious? Were you ever confused by that? Yeah, I I think I was. But, you know, now that you bring that up, I realize I ended up saying that too. (laughs) Well, the point is not to say that you're leaving before everyone is. The point is to just say, I need to leave. You know, I'm sorry that I have to leave before you guys. I hope I'm not like ruining the atmosphere, but it's just a polite way to take your leave. The fact that you're leaving before everyone else. Yeah, it's obvious, but it's just something you say. So it's one way that you're being polite in Chinese and it it just doesn't register that way to non-Chinese people. You know, this whole concept of pragmatics, and you know, it's a linguistic term, right? But it brings to mind a lot of instances where I might hear other learners, where they're posting on forums or asking questions like, can you translate this? You know, they want to translate a saying or something that they say in English, you know, like saying, what's up, for example. And like, well, you know, that doesn't translate, right? Because it's slang, you know, and it's only useful in the context of English and it doesn't translate directly. And at the same time, I'll have people saying sometimes like, well, why do you say, for example, Zola, Zola, you know, I'm leaving, but Zola. I've had people, you know, bring up questions like, well, why do you throw that Xian in there, right? What is the meaning of that? And you kind of like, well, it, you can't, it's hard to explain, right? It's just like, that's just how it is. It's just how we say it in the context. A lot of times I don't know. I'm like, that's just how you do it, you know? And I think that's some things about a language. You're just going to have to accept some of those ambiguities. And that's just how you say it, even if it feels awkward when you translate it in your head. Yeah, and it's just an example of some things are not a matter of the meaning of the word or the grammar. It's just how people use the language. Let me give another example. We'll use the same eating example. Some friends are hanging out. It's late. But let's say in this example, they're at someone's house and you're kind of, you're ready to go. Like it's, you're kind of tired. You don't want to chat all night. This person looks like they could go for another hour or two and you're ready to go. So in Chinese, you often say things like, oh, so like you go to bed early. I remember the first time I heard this, I was like, what business is it of yours? What time I go to bed? You know, like. <laughs> But in Chinese, the uh, strategy is, I am showing concern for your health by recommending that you go to bed early. But at the same time, I'm accomplishing my goal of trying to leave. Yeah, totally, John. Uh, we'll <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another one. So suppose the strategy works and the person's leaving the friend's house. Jared, what is the host going to say to the guest as they're leaving? I think, you know, one of the things I was normally say to customers when I was in my store back in Shanghai, I would say, Xia ci zai lai. So, you know, come again next time. Right, you could say that. But one thing that you hear a lot is like, manzo. Uh, like, mm, walk yeah, slowly. Yeah. Manzo. Do you think I'm going to trip if I walk fast? Like, am I an idiot? Or like, no, it just means yeah. take it easy, right? You just have to get used to this stuff. But I remember like being really confused. I think this is the kind of thing that is not really covered very well by textbooks. Some of them try but it's just really hard to capture these contexts. And when you're actually in this situation, everything that you learn in the textbook kind of goes out the window. You forget about that. And you're just really focused on, wait, what words did he say? What does that mean? Right? And then that can be misleading. You know, something else that comes to mind is that term lao, old, right? It's thrown around a lot. I, I remember once, John, I was working on a project And this guy, he was older than me. I mean, I was 33, 34 at the time, and he was in his 50s. 
and my Chinese name is Tang. And so he would say, Lao Tang, old Turner, you know, old Tang. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, I didn't feel right, you know, but he was trying to show respect and deference to me by using that term Lao. Yeah. So like terms of respect or humility, how you apply them, that can be an element of pragmatics. Sometimes you can even do it for humor or something. Like if you use honorifics for a kid or something, then it's for humor, right? <laughs> oh, but there's one other example I want to throw in. Um, it, it's funny how so many of these seem to be related to politeness. Like politeness is so cultural. And so just the meanings of the words and the grammar doesn't cover it. So w one thing that I once had with one of my clients at All Set Learning, this was a mother of three small children in their home. They spoke English, but they had naive, so they spoke to her in Chinese. One of the things that the mom really wanted to do was to make sure that the kids were polite and always said please and thank you, right? That's fine. We all know how to say please in Chinese, right? Xie, xie. Please. Oh, 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 bu ke Please. Bu ke qi. Qing. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Why am I thinking? I'm not thinking, John. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, see, I'm out of context. I'm out of context. You just tell me where I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about something else. So, qing, uh, yeah. It seems super simple, but the weird thing is when you look at how Chinese people actually talk, especially like in a family situation, the word qing is very rarely used. And it's not only because they feel like you don't have to be so polite with your family members, like that's part of it, but it's also because like they use other structures to be polite. And we do that in English too, but we also use please a lot more than Chinese people use qing. So, for example, if you want someone to get you a glass of water, in English, you might say something like, could you please get me a glass of water? So you use please, but you also use could, like could you, you're asking them, right? But in Chinese, they're much more likely, if they're going to be polite, to just be like, could you get me a glass of water? You know, something like that, or or you know, like, can I trouble you to give me? So that, for some reason, they just don't use please, right? And so that's another thing you have to get used to. Yeah, it's totally right. And so that's one of the things just about the language, just in general, you know, and I'm taking away from this, John, is it underscores the importance of context. Everyone who's been learning Chinese for any period of time has probably had this happen. You can read all the characters in a sentence. Maybe you understand all the words, but you don't know what it means. And I think this underscores that one of the elements behind that is the pragmatics. This is what we're discussing today. And how you pick that up, it's just going to be having enough comprehensible input in context. Yeah, and let's talk about this word context briefly, because I think it's tempting to, to study Chinese, come to China, have interactions with Chinese people and being like, well, yeah, of course I understood the context. I was there. I had the whole conversation with the person and they were just rude. But what about the context of how every Chinese person interacts on a daily basis? You can't really be familiar with that as a learner. You didn't grow up in China. You don't see how loving, polite people interact when you're not around. And maybe they're not using please or thank you, but they're not being rude at all. So I think this is just one area that's really ripe for like misunderstandings. And it's just where being humble and just recognizing that you have a lot to learn and that maybe when someone seems rude, they might not necessarily be rude. That's totally right. And, you know, this is one of the things about having cultural sensitivity, recognizing, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And it's going to take a long time as well to pick up on some of these nuances of the language and the culture. But it will happen over time, as long as you get enough input. Although I do have to say, 
sometimes people are rude too. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes people can be rude, but really it's almost it's like a secret. But you know what else is like a secret? A garden can be secret. And that leads into a word from our sponsor. Wow, that segue was amazing. Totally took me by surprise. Today we're talking about The Secret Garden by Mandarin Companion. So that's a level one book. It is our very first graded reader. Uh, you only need 300 characters to be able to read it. The words repeat, the characters repeat, but in such a way that it tells a beautiful story. Seriously, you may find yourself crying at the end. I did. When I first read the book in English, I cried. And I tell you, John, when we finally finished that book in Chinese, The Greater Reader, and I read the end, it brought tears to my eyes. It's a very special, touching story. Love it. No extra charge for the tears, but I should warn you, uh, you might not cry. We're not all as sensitive as Jared. Yeah, I've got a soft spot in my heart. So you can go out there and get it today. The Secret Garden, Manor Companion, Level 1, Greater Reader, 300 basic characters. You can find it on Amazon, Kindle, iBooks, Kobo, or wherever you get your books, hopefully. And the audiobook is also available. So you can go out and get it today. The Secret Garden, Mimi Huayuan. Enjoy, guys. Okay, now we are ready for rants and raves. John, what do you got for us today? You got a rant or you got a rave? I have a rave. I am a positive guy bringing you a rave. Woohoo! One of the things I've been doing a lot for my clients at All Set Learning is helping them find appropriate video content that's at the right level, that is in tune with their interests and comprehensible input. It can be actually really hard to find good video content in China. So I want to highlight a website which has plenty of good video content. It's a modern website, so it works well, you know, without flash. And it's fairly tailored to young people. But anyway, it's called Bili Bili. You may have heard of it. The Chinese slang for this site is Bijan. So like B site, like the letter B. As far as I can tell, it works okay in the US. So I'd love to hear from our listeners if you can't hear it. If that's the case, we might have to drop a note. You know, I can access it with a VPN here in China and it's not super slow. But anyway, it has a ton of pretty good content. It has things like clips from TV shows, clips from movies. It has people just doing really silly stuff you know, kind of like TikTok. It has a lot of things like video game videos, like Let's Play, people playing video games and talking about it. And if you've never watched one of these, some of them in Chinese are surprisingly easy and entertaining. So let me just throw that out there. <laughs> nice. So Billy Billy. Yeah, so that's B-I-L-I-B-I-L-I.com. So there are some great resources like that. I mean, you think about what we have here in America about social media and stuff. Some people say, oh, well, they don't have all that stuff there. No, there's like two or three times more people on the Internet in China than there are in the United States. So what do you got? Rant or rave? All right, Johnny, I got a rave. My rave today comes from Jessica Mann. She recently sent me an email to let me know about this. Someone has taken the CCC dictionary and they converted it into a Moby dictionary for Kindle. Okay, so the CCC dictionary, it's an open source, very popular, well-used Chinese dictionary. Right, John? Yeah, it's part of Pleco, too. I think it's an optional add-on you can download for free. So it's a great dictionary out there. 
And they converted it into a dictionary that's can be used for the Kindle. So this is actually a pretty big deal for anyone out there who's reading like our ebooks or any other books in Chinese on Kindle. It's a very good dictionary. It's better than the Chinese dictionary that's built in to the Kindle. We will put a link in the show notes so you can know where to download it. So that's my rave. All right. Yeah, yeah, just a stimulating conversation here about Chinese dictionaries. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Give me a shot in the arm, right? Well, our interview today is much more exciting than that, right? Oh, I think so. It's with a particle physicist. Awesome. Bring it on. My name is James Loach. At present, I describe myself as someone who works in machine learning and AI. I first found out about James when he published a paper analyzing the readability of Manor Companion books against other graded readers out there. The conclusions just happened to be good for us. I was a particle physicist, neutrinos and dark matter. This conversation with James really got me to think about the seemingly endless possible ways to enhance language learning. But it also underscored a fundamental truth. No matter how intelligent you may be or what method you use to learn, you still have to put in the time and work to learn Chinese. Stay with us. Well, James, why did you start learning Chinese? I went on a conference to Taiwan and I met somebody who became my girlfriend. The Chinese girlfriend route. A familiar story. And then two years later, I ended up moving to Shanghai to take up an academic position. I've talked to a number of people who have even married Chinese girls and they never really took that step to learn Chinese. So why did you actually start saying, hey, I really want to learn this language? I remember actually being in my hotel room in Taiwan on that trip. And I was pondering at the time whether I was going to learn Japanese or whether I was going to learn an ancient language, either Latin or Greek. But why was that even in your decision set? Why were you even thinking of learning a language? Well, I loved Japan and Japanese culture for a long time. I was reading a lot of Greek and Roman like poetry. But China as a place and Chinese as a language uh, were certainly not, not on my radar at that time. But then, yeah, one thing led to another. But in terms of like learning the language seriously, you know, when I went to Shanghai, I was not really like an expat. I took a basically a local job, university professor. And yes, yeah, so I was just sort of inhabiting a Chinese world. What did you first do to start learning Chinese? I started off actually taking some lessons in California before I moved. I played mm-hmm. around with things like Rosetta Stone and when I was in China and it became a serious thing, I had a series of Chinese teachers. I just started searching around, trying to find efficient ways to learn. Well, I think that's great. But I also know, I mean, you said you were, took a professor job. Were you trying to publish and do research at the same time? So it, it was you know, a research-focused job, although I taught the first-year class of physics students who could speak English, basically. But the research over the few years that I was there ended up tailing off. And the learning of Chinese ended up increasing. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are working and they're trying to learn Chinese. So, like, how did you carve out the time to do this? Okay, so certainly I would sympathize with people who are trying to learn Chinese from scratch whilst doing a job. Okay. At that time, as an academic, I had a fairly flexible schedule. And over my time in China, it it became a lot more flexible. Maybe I, I shouldn't say this, but by, by the end of my time there, I was spending the majority of my time learning Chinese, right? And I, and I also, ended, oh, okay, one thing I can say, I suppose, is that I kind of adopted Chinese learning as a research topic at some point. So I wrote mm. a couple of papers and doing mathematical models and things like that. So 
I suppose the thing from that is that Chinese in some way did find its way into the work that I was doing. So there was some sort of synergy. Well, I, I want to hear about this. I think that's when I first found out about you. You wrote a paper about Manor Companion and readability, but you were applying some of your experience and your, your methods of particle physics into learning Chinese, correct? Or at least assessing Chinese. Can you talk a little bit about that? I would describe myself as a physicist and I have physicist mentality. And in some ways, physicists tend to be quite lazy. And the approach to lots of the things that we do is trying to look at the problem and try to understand what's going on sort of deep down underneath it. And, mm -hmm. and my story with all this, you know, is that obviously I, I look around like everybody does online for advice, whether you should learn characters, whether you shouldn't, what's the most efficient way to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And there is lots of interesting advice out there, but all of these questions, I don't think they are solved questions and there's certainly not clear and consistent advice. And the advice that I was getting from my Chinese teachers was sometimes slightly bizarre. What were they saying? The way to learn characters is just to write them down lots of times until mm -hmm. until you remember them, right? Yeah. Well, that's how they learn. <laughs> well, well, of course, that's the thing, isn't it? If you have six years to spend writing down characters, you can learn a lot of characters. Yeah. That, that's something I always talk about. They use first language learning methods to teach L2 learners or second language learners. It doesn't always work out that way. Certainly. Mm -hmm. You know, all of this started was just basically trying to figure out how to do something I'm not naturally very good at more efficiently in the context of learning characters firstly, then in terms of things like space repetition algorithms, thinking how they could be done more effectively with Chinese and then also readability. So what were some key insights that you found that really helped you learn? So certainly I think you have to have a, a good balance between working out efficient ways to learn things and how to organize your study and actually studying. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> I do have a weakness to spend too much time on the format and not enough time on the latter, right? And it's strange at the moment, so actually I'm just getting started with meditation and I'm seeing the same sort of pattern emerge. I read lots and lots of books on Zen and all kinds of things, <laughs> uh, but have not spent a great deal of time practicing yet. <laughs> and certainly writing about learning Chinese is not necessarily the best way to learn in the bigger picture. And I think that's what you were focused mostly on, is just like it's a more efficient way to learn characters. Yeah, I mean, it's all sort of connected. I mean, going back to the things that you do, Obviously, to read and then to engage in extensive reading, you have to learn the characters, right? It's a, it's a sort of the first step. But I guess, you know, the, the thing with characters fundamentally is that they are related things. And obviously, you don't treat them mm -hmm. as strokes. It's a hierarchy of different components that fit together. And then the other interesting thing about characters, I suppose, a little bit later on is understanding the phonetic components. And to me, I don't know, they, they are more useful than I was led to believe early on. I know teachers and you know, times I've talked to say, oh, yeah, you can learn the phonetic elements of a character, then you can just be able to pronounce characters you don't know. And not necessarily true. <laughs> I think that's certainly not true, but it's... It's sometimes true. <laughs> but you develop some kind of instinct, don't you, right? So characters, you can kind of guess what little cluster of pronunciations it probably has. And mm -hmm. I, I find that's something that I've not tried to learn, and I wouldn't know how to sort of go about learning it, really. But once you, you know a lot of characters, I, I feel that you kind of develop some kind of instinct. And then when I was mm -hmm. writing my paper on characters, I think it's really quite a large fraction of characters have some sort of phonetic cue. Well, can you think about any breakthrough moments like uh, when you were learning or it could have been reading or just on the street or something like where all of a sudden, hey, you know, you were able to do something, you know, you weren't able to do before. 
Yeah, finishing uh, a book in Chinese. That's the kind of thing that when you start to learn Chinese, you can hardly imagine. To actually run your eyes across Chinese text and take the meaning directly out of the text into your head <laughs> and follow something yeah. going around, that feels like it's a very exotic and strange and, and nice experience. I can remember the first time I read a book in Chinese. I think it was the Chinese Breeze Graded Readers. It was just like mind blown. I'm like, I like, I read a book in Chinese. That's just like, I never imagined I one day I'd be able to do this. No, it feels like a superpower somehow, doesn't it? So you wrote this paper, and I mentioned it a little earlier, but you approached the concept of like readability of, you know, I guess, language learning texts. So what is readability? And what were some of the things that you discovered as you were approaching this? So... The, the motivation was there is a bunch of material out there, okay? And when you're trying to find something that is suitable as reading material, that's just a difficult thing to do. You, you're basically relying on other people's assessments and different levels. And so what, what I was interested in doing ultimately was writing an algorithm which should go through all of the potential learning material that I could have access to and would pick out material that would be extensive reading, a way that's not torturous. When you try to do that, of course, you have to define what you mean by readability. Well, yeah, talk about that. I mean, how did you actually define that? The way I was thinking about readability was in terms of, of the pleasure and ease of it. So you want to consume lots of material, but you, know, you want it to be useful. So you want there to be some things in there that you're uncertain of or are new, but not too much that it puts you off reading. So one interesting thing about this is that the difference between a text that feels uncomfortable to read and one that feels comfortable to read can in some ways be quite small. But if you look at a text, you look at the fraction of the words that you understand. So something which you understand 95% of the words and you understand 99% of the words, there's a radically different experiences of reading. Just on that note, when you just put the number 95 and 99%, people are like, they're virtually the same. But when I pull it out and say, hey, okay, you know, 95%, it's one in 20 words you don't know. 99% is like one in 100 you don't know. When you drop down to 90%, that's one in 10. So you got like one to two words, a sentence, or in this case, characters that you probably wouldn't know. That's a big deal. Yeah. And so that's the right way to look at it. So looking at the inverse like that. So, okay, so you, you want to look at the probability that you're going to understand any particular word. And then you need to map that on to something which captures the experience of the reader to give you some sort of scale. I come up with some sort of function that's, you know, well motivated by the data and things like that. And then the next thing you have to do is you have to come up with those probabilities. You know, what was the probability of understanding different words? And in order to do that, you have to pull out the words, which is a complicated thing in <laughs> Chinese, okay, in terms of segmenting the text and what have you. And so, you know, I go through some process here of using word segmenters and then starting to look at the, the difficulty of individual words based on analysis mm -hmm. of corpus text. And then the other thing that I suppose it was interesting is to try to think of things in terms of levels. So instead of looking at a piece of text and sort of giving it a rating as such, okay? The idea or my approach to it was to think about readers of particular levels. I was using the HSK system and mm -hmm. come up with an estimate for the readability of that text at the different levels. So you don't look at a text and say, this is a HSK 3 text or 3.1 or whatever, whatever that would mean, right? You, you take your list of levels and you calculate the probability that this would be extensive reading or pleasant reading. 
okay, across oh, each okay. of those levels. And you get different profiles. So some things you can have it super, super easy for levels one and two, and then it goes up to super, super hard for level three, right? And you can have yeah. other sort of text where you actually have a more gradual transition. So you're evaluating text against a standard at that's set at a certain level. So you say, hey, how's this text compare to, and I think in your case, you were talking about HSK levels. Yeah, yeah. So he was doing that. And then it's also this thing that if you're comparing it against a leveled system, you have a bunch of numbers. You have the suitability for each of those levels. And it gives a little graph, a little profile of the readability. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a slightly richer view into the readability than just giving it a number. Uh, That's pretty fun. I mean, you know, as you're talking about this, this makes me think about, I went and got an MBA. I have a business degree and there's a lot of guys that come, you know, from a quant background, from physics and stuff, they will end up in finance. You know, <laughs> you're applying a lot of these complex models to, you know, that type of field. So I'm, I'm very happy to see that, you know, you use some of your training and your background to apply that to language learning. And I think, especially when I came across this paper, I think that, hey, I'm like, this is great. This is something that a lot of teachers, we want to have some sort of way to evaluate or score things against the level, but it's, you know, we can maybe just do Venn diagrams, you know, we just have like an overlap. So, oh, you should have this much, you know, knowledge of characters between these two sets, between maybe this text and this book. But getting like really in-depth analysis, you know, as for like, hey, an actual readability score, that's a step further. Yeah, and I, I think that's super important. Like if you can score things properly and sensibly, then it, it enables lots of automated things to sit on top of that. And I had ideas that I was going to, yeah, indexing BBC News, Chinese articles, and New York Times, Chinese articles, <laughs> like crawling things online, and then being able to pull out stuff, yeah, that was just exactly at the right level from these big databases. This is the idea. I mean, I'm sure there are general purpose algorithms for assessing the general readability of Chinese text, the case of thing. But the vast majority of learners, they operate all down in one little corner where very small differences to how many characters or words they understand make a massive difference to their appreciation of what's going on. And if you take those general purpose sort of algorithms and you apply them to learner material, it can give you, you know, it's just not going to work basically. Well, you know, before we started Mandarin Companion, John had spent years collecting, transcribing Chinese textbooks. He had transcribed lessons and dialogues that were happening between learners, you know, things that were being taught to teachers. So we had this huge corpus of language that was being taught to L2 learners. And that's what we used to base all of our levels on for Manor Companion. Because as you were mentioning, if you just try to, hey, use what's normally spoken in Chinese, that doesn't reflect the reality of what people are learning, what they're being taught. So interesting as well. I was basing the things that I was doing around the HSK levels. But of course, you know, the HSK word lists are, are not great. At a certain level, like level four or five, you know, there are loads of words that people definitely know that are not in those lists, right? For, for example, yeah. okay. And they'll even be included in various of the textbooks uh, in dialogues. And I did a similar mm-hmm. thing to you. I got dozens and dozens of textbooks that were, were loosely graded to these levels. And I chopped them up and scanned them and OCR the text. I think for corpus analysis, I think, you know, to have a a respectable corpus, you need to have like five, 10 million words in that corpus. You know, in ours, this is years of work that John put in. I mean, we have like maybe, I think 800,000 to a million. John's probably going to butcher me later saying, I don't have that many, but it's great for L2 learning, you know, but as far as is like, you know, respectable academics, you know, they'd be like, oh, you know, I need a lot more. And yeah, we do need a lot more, but it's just not a lot's available out there for L2. 
And especially not stuff which is properly graded. At least you know with textbooks, decent textbooks, that somebody's actually gone through the effort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think I'd like to hear from your perspective on this. What do you think is the future potential for applying some of these quantitative methods to, you know, for Chinese and put your futurist cap on? What would you see happening in the future? When you sit down to learn, you've allocated some time and some effort and you want it to be efficient. There's different levels of efficiency you might want if you're feeling super energetic and you're super into it you might want it to be very efficient which means often relatively hard or it might be a more casual thing where you want some sort of low efficiency but you, you know you've, you've allocated the time for it but basically you've got some time and you've got some expectation of how much effort you're willing to put in and you want the materials which allows you to make optimum use of that basically right uh, and that involves systems that understand the thing that you're learning and understand you and understand the relationship between you and the thing that you're learning, Chinese in this case, and match you up with the appropriate bit. And I think with Chinese, so to me, if you're just thinking in terms of characters, words, it's like a big graph, right? You know, the characters form into words and the words into, into bigger things, you know? It's a big, big graph. And what you're doing when you're learning the language, in one sense, is you're, you're, you're moving through that graph. It's bits of it you know. Once you know these characters, you can learn these words and blah, 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 blah. But you've basically got a graph that sort of represents a language, you know a bit of it, a bit of it's kind of hazy, and bits of it are sort of unknown to you. And, you know, if you want to learn, you want to be in that hazy bit, basically. And so that's answering questions and giving answers, listening to audio recordings, reading for pleasure. But you all want it to be around that grey area and to be overlapping with the grey area enough that it gives you the level of difficulty that you want at that time. But you have to have something that understands that graph, understands your location in it, and has got a reservoir of interesting material that it can give you that sits where you want to be. And it's sort of interesting, you like when you were learning Chinese, like I had a lot of teachers, like about 10 or 15 or something. But, you know, a Chinese teacher, certainly beginner level, you don't have to talk to them very long and they know what you know, right? A few sentences yeah. and they, they know. And that's yeah. because they've got a good model of this graph basically in their head. It sort of grows out and people tend to learn in the same way. So they have this kind of calibrated model and they can sit you in that and say, oh, well, you're about here then. And they also have a model of the learning materials and how it fits in with that network. And so they can then provide you with the learning materials. But it's not efficient. Their model of things is not as granular as it could be. And really, computers should just be able to do this much, 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 much better than mm. people, basically, right? Anyway, so it's a long answer to your question, but that's the game that you're playing. And like, and if you're using, I don't know, Duolingo or the, these kind of apps, that's obviously what they're trying to do. I'm going to try to like uh, summarize, I think what you're kind of saying is that a Chinese person, in this case, let's say a Chinese teacher or tutor, they intuitively can kind of understand your level after speaking with you for a little bit. And obviously there's something happening up in the gray matter. There's some sort of model, if you will. And you think that there's the potential to actually create that model so it can assess someone and then try to give them material and input at their level. Yeah. And I think Chinese teachers, maybe they talk to hundreds or thousands of students in their lifetime, but obviously a piece of software can have, in principle have access to millions of students and form yeah. very, very rich representations. But the thing where it really excels is actually how that information is used because, you know, mm -hmm. Chinese teachers can't read through millions and millions of articles and 
connect them up to their model of the stages of learning and what have you. You just can't do it. But an automated system can do that very efficiently. As you're talking about this, something just even comes to mind. So we're native English speakers, but if we're speaking to someone who is not a native English speaker, you know, within a half a minute of speaking with that person, we have a pretty good idea of what their English level is. Yeah. And it becomes more sophisticated the older you get and the more non-native speakers you speak to if you yeah, grow up right. in a monoculture and what have you and you're seven years old you know people can either understand what you're saying or they can't right i've shared the story before but my family growing up we housed a lot of foreign exchange students and they would come to learn english and they would stay for anywhere from like you know weeks to months we had i think like you know 90 or 100 students over the course of five six years and i think through that experience yeah i gathered that whole concept of like hey you know you don't speak to an L2 learner, you know, someone who's learning English, like the way you would speak to any normal native speaking friend. And I think a little bit, that's what you're getting at is that it's not just about understanding their level, but it's understanding how, so how to give them input that they can comprehend. And that should be nice. And those systems should work very well. They don't particularly exist for Chinese, but they're things that should just be able to sit there in the background and just kind of delight you and interest you. Well, okay. So let's create a hypothetical situation here. You have got a team of people who are passionate about this. They have skills and knowledge and budget's not an issue. What would you do? You need to get hold of lots of material. The books that you write are excellent resources. Yeah, certainly. How many do you have? 16. Not enough. But the, but that's the thing. So you have those things and they're at certain levels. So there will be times during people's learning where those books would fit in as, right, you're now ready. You'll find this a little bit challenging, but you'll definitely be able to do it. You'll feel great once you've done it. But what you want is a lot of material and you have to think about where to get that from and how to organize it. And then you've got to think about how you learn about people's knowledge. So just giving them a copy of your book, <laughs> this is fine, but you don't learn much from doing that. The user's got to yeah. be doing something. And for books, looking up words is how you get that kind of information with any written text, the people's interaction with the text. With audio things, maybe it's a bit more complicated. If you've got a dictionary built in or something, you can kind of get that kind of information. You might just get information from direct feedback or just from people just giving up on stuff or what have you, you know, you can mm -hmm. leisure their levels of engagement. I think it's a fairly standard thing. You just have to collect lots of material. You have to come up with a, a nice way of building this model or this network. And then you have to come up with a nice way of calibrating that network or model based on information that the user gives you based on the things you expose them to. and Apps are brilliant for that. And apps using lots of different interaction modes with different kinds of material, likely to keep people's attention and give you more richer sort of feedback as well, right? And then you could also think about seeding that model as well. So you don't have to learn the whole thing from interactions. There's a load of data there already, <laughs> probably in private companies. So you collect this kind yeah. of but, I mean it's, it's for example a dictionary company you know they know what words people look up and they know the frequencies of those and like when I was doing my stuff on Chinese characters yeah I was using Chinese movie subtitles and this and that to calculate the frequencies of different characters and what have you but again someone who has a dictionary app would be able to work or knowing the real world what the frequencies are and they will also know that if somebody's looking up this word like one week ago they looked at this other word or one hour ago they looked at this other word so you've got this time sequence of things that people look up. So you know the relative frequencies of things as a whole, and you also can sort of understand something about people's progression. 
through their learning process from looking at what they look up as a function of time. And also the way they look it up, they do the pronunciation or what have you, right? Anyway, so you'd use that existing information to seed your model. You know, in a statistical sense, you say that's the prior, you get some estimate for what this thing is, and then you'd set that loose in the real world and you'd learn based on that prior, right? It's machine learning. Lots of people who work in machine learning like to describe (laughs) it as AI, but it's machine learning. And lots of those techniques as well in machine learning are also old-fashioned, classical, statistical sort of things as well Mm. that get relabeled. So James, if people want to find out a little more about you, where can they find you? Okay, so I have a a website, which is uh, jamesloach.com, and that has my contact details, describes, I suppose, a little bit about what I do. Happy to talk to people, especially uh, people with interesting ideas. And we wrote an article about your paper on our blog as well, so we'll probably share that link in the show notes along with how people can reach you. Well, James, I appreciate you being on the podcast here. It's been really interesting. It's good to talk to you. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, watermelon farmer, cookie baker, lumberjack, balloon blower, prop maker, and the one gal named Shirley. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. If you feel like you've got an interesting story to share about learning Chinese, reach out to us. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. I'd like to thank our guest, James Loach, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.